Welcome to Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a podcast all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. The prophet Amos is told by the priest not to prophesy in Bethel because it is the sanctuary of the king. But we know the deeper history of Bethel is that Jacob named it the house of God. What do you do when the king and the prophet, or God and government, have conflicting claims? And where does Romans 13 fit in? These are the pressing questions of the moment we are in, and this no-holds-barred message from the table explores them all. Enjoy. Well, good evening, everybody. So glad you're here. Glad to have old friends back, new friends who are with us. Um, We'll take some time to... um, welcome you guys a little further and do some fun stuff towards the end. But if you have your Bibles, I'm going to go ahead and ask you, if you would, to turn to Amos chapter 7. And I find it utterly hilarious in some ways that I'm preaching this particular text tonight. Um, As your turn, let me just pray for us one more time. God, thank you for just the sweetness of your presence as... CC and Weston have led us in in such a beautiful way. Thank you for the gift of each other and of this community. Just pray for grace in uh, these moments that we have, um, that you truly would open up our minds and our hearts to be able to um, behold wondrous things out of your law, as David said, uh, to be able to see the things you would have us to see, to truly hear the things that your spirit is saying to the church to be able to hear um, in a way that would get past our defenses. I'm, I guess I felt the knot in my stomach a little bit all day, just knowing that um, so much of things I feel like you're pushing me into these days are complicated and complex. And I mostly uh, feel in over my head. Uh, so just want to very much rely on you and on your spirit to teach us, to guide us, to illuminate us, enlighten us, in the ways that only you can. You are our teacher. You are our guides. I pray that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, that you would comfort where we need to be consoled. We lean strongly on you, Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. And everybody said, Amen. So here's the thing. If you, like me, don't come from a tradition that preaches from the lectionary, a common set of texts that Christians, through many traditions, um, used throughout the world, uh, especially on Sundays, uh, we do tend to preach the lectionary here most of the time. And I love it because I feel like it's kind of wild the way the Holy Spirit gets in the mix as to what texts happen to appear, what week, depending on what's happening in the world, how those things um, kind of are directed. It's always really, really astounding to me. And um, I was meeting with our team on Tuesday with Nicole and Cece and Malika, and it was funny because I hadn't really had a chance to think about what I was going to preach this weekend. A lot of things were going on, but I had scanned the lectionary text this week, and upon scanning, I had looked at the Amos text, and I thought, okay, well, whichever passage I'm using this week, because like the Old Testament reading is Amos, the New Testament reading is the wonderful story of the Good Samaritan, but I was like, whatever text I'm doing, I know I'm not going to preach the Amos text, because that's just too hardcore. And I made a joke about it, in fact, because Amos, um, the text that we'll read at length here in just a second, ends with this wonderful prophecy where Amos says, 
your wife shall become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters shall die by the sword. So I laughed with the team because I was like, well, I know I won't be preaching the Amos passage this weekend because, like, how would you preach that? And it was funny because I knew when I say it, I said it the way the Holy Spirit has with me. And I, I'm not one of these people that acts like God speaks to me like this all the time. But I knew when I said it, I was like, <laughs> I think that's a text I'm supposed to preach. <laughs> I just knew it. And there was this, I really felt like there was this, in that inward way the Holy Spirit has, I felt like there was this invitation to look again, you know, look a second time. So after we got done meeting, I got into the office and pulled out my Bible by myself, and I got to look at this text, and man, I really think I'm supposed to preach this Amos passage. So here you go. This is decidedly not one I've preached from before. Uh, Amos chapter 7, beginning with verse 7, and it goes like this. The prophet says, this is what he showed me. The Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line and with the plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, see, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. I will never again pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now, here's where the plot thickens. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos, the prophet, has conspired against you in the very center of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. Now I want to read on, but just for a moment, I want you to catch the gravity and the oddness of what's actually happening here. Amaziah is a priest. He is a priest. And I always want to be careful how I frame these tensions in the Old Testament because I never want to do the thing because I feel like this has frankly been used in a way that can be anti-Semitic where it's kind of like, you know, anything around the Old Testament and law, that's a bunch of legalism and priests were bad. Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, the law, the Torah was a good gift and Torah is celebrated as good and Torah instructs the people of God to take care of the poor and the needy among them. And the priests are charged first and foremost to ensure that the people of God take care of the poor and the needy among them. There's nothing wrong with the law. And Jesus himself will later be described as our high priest. But what we see consistently happening through the narrative of the Old Testament is that over and over again, we do have accounts where the priest, who I think it's worth noting in kind of Christian vernacular, are the closest thing we have to a pastor. They serve local communities. They serve in the temple. They, they have a congregation of sorts. They have a liturgical function within the community to lead the people into the presence of God. Closest thing we have in the church to what we call a pastor. So let me say it that way. The pastors have a tendency to want to get a little bit too close to some of these kings. 
And when the pastors get a little bit close to some of the kings and get a little bit too excited about the kind of power that you get when you're offered a seat at the king's table, that's what creates the kind of Frankenstein's monster that you get here. To where a priest, to where again in our Christian vernacular, a pastor is the one who runs to the king to say, hey, there's a prophet out here saying stuff that's going against you. I think we should do something about this. This is a priest who initiates this. This is a man of God. This is a man of the cloth. And he's the one. He's the one who's actually opposing the prophet. So to get back to the text, Amaziah, the priest, says to Amos, the prophet, Oh, seer, go, (laughs) flee away to the land of Judah, earn your bread there, and prophesy there. I'm almost imagining as I'm reading this right now, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a sweetness a little bit. I mean, if you want to prophesy, you can prophesy. If you want to be a prophet, you can be a prophet. Just go do it in the land of Judah. Make your money there. Earn your living there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. The other day when I read this text alone, somehow that verse in particular just ran all over me. Because if you know your Old Testament at all, you recognize Bethel. First appearance of Bethel is this is the place, of course, where Jacob, one of the great patriarchs, has this encounter with God. He has an encounter with God. He has a vision or a dream where he sees angels ascending and descending on this ladder from heaven to the earth. And because his encounter there is so profound, he decides to name that very piece of land Bethel, meaning house of God. Because he says, this is the place where I saw in this exact quote, the gate of heaven, the house of God, the gate of heaven. So especially when you think about the priest here, this is Israel's religion. This is one of the ancestors. This was Jacob who named this Bethel, the house of God, the gate of heaven. And yet now things have gone so far that the priest is the one going to stop the prophet saying, don't prophesy in the place called the house of God. Don't prophesy in the place called the gate of heaven. Don't you know this is the king's land? Don't you know that this is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom? Now I'm just asking y'all, How jacked up is that when the king doesn't even have to make this case for himself? He's got a priest willing to do this for him. He's got a pastor willing to go to the people for him to say, hey, 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 this isn't God's land. Y'all are being way too spiritual with this thing. Don't go around quoting Bible verses. That's impractical. This is the king's land. This is the king's sanctuary. And where the king has lands, it's the king's rules. You can't have a prophet going around prophesying 
on the king's land? Now, I love Amos' response here. Because he's already been told, if you're going to prophesy, you've got to prophesy somewhere else. But Amos' response, Amos then answered Amaziah, I'm no prophet. I don't claim to be a prophet. I'm no prophet, nor a prophet's son. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. But I am a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. These are my credentials. But here's the thing. Amos wants to say, the Lord took, uh, can we go on to the next? There we go. The Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. In other words, hey, look, man, I'm not claiming to be a prophet. I'm just a herdsman. What I will tell you is that God picked me up out of what I was doing and gave me something to say. I don't claim to be anybody, but God gave me a word. It's burning me inside out. So here I am. I've got to say what God told me to say, he said, go prophesy to the people of Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. <laughs> and this is where I don't, I don't know why I laugh sometimes at hard things. Honestly, the day this is, it's awful, but it made me laugh. You say, you say to me, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. That's what you're saying to me. Therefore, here's what the Lord is saying to you. Your wife shall become a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be parceled out by line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Good grief. Oh, you told me not to prophesy here. Well, here's my prophecy for you. Everything's about to go into ruin. You're about to lose the land. Y'all are going to die here. I mean, it's so, you know, and I don't think this is that, you know, Amos is trying to be petty here. This is actually what God has given him to say. And you have to keep in mind, I promise I'm going somewhere, the, the broader context of the book of Amos over and over again. And this is, I, please fact check me on this. Go back and read the whole book of Amos and tell me if I'm wrong. God really only has one central complaint in the book of Amos, and it's the same thing over and over again. It's said in different ways, but it's really just one thing. Chapter 8, verse 4 says it concisely, but it's said over and over again. Hear this, you that trample on the needy and, to, and you bring to ruin the poor of the land. That's the accusation of the book of Amos. You trample on the needy. And so I'm just hearing this in the year of our Lord, 2019, and thinking what a weird time it is to read a passage like this about priests who sell out for the sake of power at the king's table, about these conflicting claims, which, and I really do get this, the people of God are often actually caught up in between. Well, the king actually, the king has a claim on the land. The king does have a claim on the land. And the king has a claim on the land the way that all kings have claims on land, through a history of war. Here's who I conquered, when and where. And here are the boundaries that I drew. He does have a claim on the land. And yet the prophet is there to remind the priest that the land has a deeper history. 
the land, O king, was here before you got here. God created this. This is still the house of God. And if you're hearing this and thinking, well, yeah, that, well, that's, this is cool, but, you know, Israel's kind of a special place. Yeah, yeah. But it is the Israelites who told us, Psalm 24, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's all God's land. And that's where the story is going, according to the prophet Isaiah, to the day where the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's where it's going. It's all God's land. God was here before we got here. And the point simply the prophet wants to make to the king is that there is a higher law. And it just feels like always, really, we're living in a time of conflicting claims. Where the king says one thing, where the priest says one thing, and the prophet says another. By the way, no wonder, can I I keep this in Christian vernacular? No wonder church folk are so confused when the priest and prophets are disagreeing with each other. (laughs) It's real confusing when the priests are speaking on behalf of the king. And they're just giving you another version of the royal report. They're just giving you another version of the state propaganda. They just say whatever the king. That's real confusion. When the priest tells, it tells the people whatever the king tells them they're supposed to say. And it's the prophet who says. But, but God says you have to take care of the needy. But it's the king's sanctuary. No, I, I don't care who's sanctuary. Call it whatever you want to call it. God says, if you don't take care of the needy among you, this whole thing is about to unravel. So I know you can't imagine any sort of application in this moment that we're in. In all sincerity, though, and I really I'm not trying to be um, silly about any of this, because really. I understand that, like, categorically. All of this stuff gets really, really complicated. Uh, I, I literally, everywhere I've gone this week, without looking for it, I turned on the radio, I turned on NPR in the car, driving somewhere Thursday morning, and I heard a 30-minute conversation with Christians, and it was actually a really good conversation, debating the meaning of Romans 13, the passage where Paul talks about being subject to government authority, on air on NPR. And I thought, this is an, what an interesting moment that we're living in, you know. And it makes sense to me that Christians are having these kind of conversations in public, and we ought to be having these kind of conversations in public, because I think the stakes are very, are very high, because there are a lot of us. And what we say, what we do, makes a real difference in terms of what happens with the world. I, I actually, more than you might think I am, am very sensitive for people who are here, for people watching on the internet, listen to podcasts, whatever. I'm actually very sensitive that wherever we come from, that we have different political persuasions, that we come from different places, and that um, complex challenges in our moment don't have simple answers. Like, I really do get that. I really do get that. And I never want to gravitate towards simple answers. I never want any particular uh, people group or anybody of any particular persuasion to feel uncomfortable. Uh, in a, actually, I don't want to say it that way. The Holy, 
I want you to feel uncomfortable if the Holy Ghost wants you to feel uncomfortable. I don't want you to feel uncomfortable like in a peer pressure kind of way. You know what I'm saying? Because like, hey, it's, man, it is, it is tough. The conversation we're having right now about refugees, migrants, all that's happening. Do, am I smart enough to feel like I've got a comprehensive answer for what you've been? I mean, of course I do not. Of course I do not. Of course, we're dealing with a lot of things in this moment that I think take wrangling and prayer and, yes, policy. And no, I don't think it can be just as simple as, well, we're Christians, we're kind, so everybody just come. I understand it's not that simple. But I also understand this, and this is where I start with any kind of conversation about anything political in any category, is that there is a higher law of human dignity that transcends every other law. We have to start there. We have to start there. We have to start with everybody that we see is created in the image of God. We have to start from that premise. Now, can we have significant differences about the best way to care for humans created in the image of God? Of course. Can we have significant differences about what's the role of government versus say, what's the role of the church and how we can? Of course. It's okay to have robust and loud differences. What we can't disagree is like this through line that goes through Amos is somehow, some way, the poor have to be cared for. And apparently, because this is always how it's worked. This is always how it's worked. It's the people of God's job to ensure that that happens first and foremost. That's the job of the people of God. And no matter who's in power, no matter who's in office, no matter who's in and out, I understand Caesar's come and go. It's the job of the people of God to be the ones who are reminding the kings of that. that that's, all, that's always been the role of the people of God. That's always the way this is supposed to look. I know that when there are conflicting claims, I'd way rather be on the side of Amos the prophet than a compromised priest. Now, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean it's not, that it's not hard sometimes. Man, that priest. (laughs) I've got funny things running through my mind right now that I just don't know if they're helpful to say. (laughs) The priest has means. The priest has resources. The priest's message is going to go over in a way that Amos' message is not. That's one of the really interesting things about the moment we're in right now is I feel like so many American Christians in particular are so bought into the narrative that if if God's in it, it's going to grow and prosper and be blessed. That if you hear the minority report and it's an unpopular thing, well, that can't be good and right because, you know, if if not, it would be blessed. That's not what we get in something like Amos. I promise it will never be the message that's going to be popular and blessed when the prophet's saying, hey, actually, God's about to lay waste to the city. God's about to burn it all down because y'all don't take care of the poor. But, you know, this is also, these are, I'm I'm saying a lot of things. These are the same concerns we get in the prophet Jeremiah. Oh, y'all false prophets running around saying peace, peace when there is no peace. Saying God told me to say this when God didn't tell you anything. This is a real problem. And a certain point in time that gets exposed for the lie that it is. Now, I'm... I am going to try to mind my time a little bit. And I wasn't actually going to go to the New Testament reading at all, but I do think this is just weird. And I'm, you know, whether y- y'all discern, 
I am not the ultimate discerner of the Holy Spirit. Y'all can figure that out better than I can, I'm sure. The community can discern that. But it is crazy to me that with everything going on, that Amos was the Old Testament lectionary reading for this week, and that the New Testament, the gospel reading is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Can I remind you of that story briefly? Just, just kind of drive by. Luke chapter 10, because this seems to be important, seems to bear witness here. Luke 10, verse 25, just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? Jesus responds, what do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. Verse 29, though, but wanting to justify himself. That's why it's hard. Some of the conversations I feel like I'm having right now, if I'm honest, because some people I feel like have real good theological questions about God and gospel and government. I love that. An awful lot of people simply want to justify themselves. (laughs) And they ask the question that all people ask when they're trying to justify themselves. I felt the Holy Ghost on that right there. Who is my neighbor? Whenever anybody wants to get real legalistic about who their neighbor is or is not, you better know they're trying to justify themselves. People who don't study the Bible at all are all of a sudden doing crossword puzzles in Hebrew and Greek, trying to figure out exactly who their neighbor is and what the limits are to that phrase when they think they've got a chance that it might not be this person. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. This long, dangerous road that everybody knew from Jerusalem to Jericho, a 17-mile road. Man's left there half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road a priest who would fit in well with the priest from Amos, it sounds like. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He would have been, keep in mind, justified in doing so because according to Levitical law, and sometimes people forget these things actually are in the Bible. You're actually not supposed to touch an unclean thing. And a a corpse is unclean. So he passes on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, also passes by on the other side. But a Samaritan, a Samaritan. And all the people who are hearing this text are are shocked. A Samaritan? It's like Jesus is saying to a crowd of folks from some fundamentalist church in Oklahoma, a Muslim passes by. This guy from the band, the village people, passes by. Really? While traveling, and he comes near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. 
Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Do you see how all this fits together? It's a story about dignity. It's a story about seeing another man or another woman as being fully created in the image of God and responding as such, responding with mercy. Mercy is the first response, not the second. Mercy is the first response. Instead of looking for loopholes, instead of looking to justify ourselves. I, I, I really want to leave the refugee thing. I know there are other things that are pressing. I know there are things as Christians that matters. But, you know, some of y'all have seen this. There's a survey released this week, and I have no reason to distrust this data because I can tell you as a pastor and just a person who has a lot of conversations about God and theology with regular people, this bears out. There is no demographic of people in the United States more likely to say no to any refugees being admitted, to any, than white evangelical Christians. Now, however complicated it might be and the solutions might be and all those caveats that I will grant, something is very wrong when people are more likely than anybody else to say no to a stranger because of their faith. Don't tell me you mostly got that from reading the Bible. Don't tell me this is where you're getting discipled. You're getting discipled from your cable news. You're getting discipled, which is the trouble these days, you know, is if I come into contact with any of that, if I cross that in any way, well, that's great, Pastor. It's nice that you think these things, but, you know, you're not the expert here. Well, I guess not. When you're being discipled by all of that or by your Facebook algorithm five or six hours a day, how dare I try to disciple you a few minutes a week with Scripture? But something is very wrong with this picture. I am, um, okay, so here's the thing. I'm officially at the point now to where I think probably the best move strategically would be to wind up this sermon and come to the table. But I'm going one other place. Can y'all give me a couple more minutes? You're not bored, I hope. One more thing, just because, just because these are the kind of conversations that are being had. And I'm in a place where, you know, this is how I am because I'm this weird, Bobby, mystical, Pentecostal type. And I think that everything that happens to me, oh, what's the Holy Spirit saying? Why am I running? If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. I cannot, I cannot walk out the front door this week without bumping into Romans 13. I feel like everywhere I go, it's I just told you about the NPR thing about Romans 13. I feel like that's happening. I, I'm hearing that so much. And again, always with, I, I really don't go around just being a condescending jerk about these things. That's part of what's weird about my calling is that like, you know, I'm, I'm such a nice person. And then by virtue of my calling, I feel like I get up on a stage and what's in me to say is, your sister's a whore and God's going to burn the city. <laughs> so this is, this is why I'm a very conflicted person in a lot of ways. <laughs> it's like, I didn't sign up for this, you know. <laughs> but really, um, I feel I, I wanted to at least say a couple words about Romans 13 before we close, even if it's messing up my preaching narrative. Because I think this does get into what's a real tension. And, and again, some of this tension is actually within the text. That, um, that dialogue between the priest and prophet, I thought, about is actually within the text. That back and forth is within the text. Some of this actually does get complicated, and I get that. So this is the text people keep bringing up to me as of late. Romans 13, beginning verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul talking here. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, 
and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason, you must also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. Okay, so here we get um, a, a, a challenging text. Paul talks about submitting to authorities in Romans 13. But here's the first thing I always want to remind people when they talk about Romans 13. Please don't talk to me about Romans 13 and forget who the Apostle Paul is. And by that I mean an enemy of the state who spends half his life in jail executed by the empire. A person who in a time when the proclamation was, now you do know this, right? I'm not making this up. I, I want to fact check everything, right? Don't take my word for it. I don't do any of that. I'm God's anointed and y'all trust me. I never say things like that. Don't, don't you have to believe anything I say. <laughs> the gospel, the very phrase, the gospel, the good news is a direct parody on what they said in the Roman Empire about Caesar. The gospel, the good news of Caesar, the peace of Caesar has come. Paul directly takes that phrase to preach the good news, the gospel about Jesus. He knows what he's doing. He subverts it in a way to say, oh, it's not Caesar who's Lord. Jesus is Lord. He knows what he's doing. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Caesar is not. He knows what he's doing. Now, the Roman Empire exaggerated the threat, acting like Paul was a domestic terrorist. He was never interested in a political coup as we think about such things. He definitely wasn't interested in some kind of a violent, like Jesus, he was a man of the cross. He wasn't about the sword. But they're right to be threatened in this way. The love that Paul preaches in Christ is actually supremely threatening to the forces of empire and actually does lead to the unraveling of the regime in many ways. They're right to be afraid in this regard. Now, I'm convinced that Paul's posture in all this, it's absurd to think that somebody who lives in that much trouble is going around saying, now, y'all just do whatever Caesar tells you to do because Caesar's a good guy. And like, and I'll get more to that in a second. I'm convinced Paul simply doesn't want his early disciples to get killed. It's like, there's enough tension around here. Y'all play nice when you can because he doesn't want more conflict. He doesn't want more bloodshed. But this idea that Paul is like, no, he's not a domestic terrorist, but he's not a domesticated house cat. Do you hear what I'm saying? Like that just makes no sense of who the apostle Paul is. And furthermore, I'm really convinced by this. I put a little thread about this on Twitter and Facebook day, because right now I'm, kind of, I'm fairly obsessed with these things. A guy named Mark Nanos 
put out an excellent study of Paul years ago, reading Paul in more Jewish context, that I think makes so much more sense of Romans 13. Because Paul says some things in Romans 13 that outright, I know there are other places where Paul will say things like, pray for your governing authorities, have a reverent, honoring posture towards them, you know. Uh, have it like that, like that sounds like Paul, but there aren't other places in Paul where Paul says something like, you know, um, Caesar and his guys are, because I don't know if you caught this phrase, ministers. They are ministers who want what's best for you. Like what? But what makes much more sense of this without having time to get into all the research is that keep in mind, the whole rest of the book of Romans before this has been navigating the complicated relationship between early Jews and Christians. The earliest Christians are still going to synagogue. Remember in the book of Acts that it says daily in the temple and from house to house, they break bread. They're still worshiping in the synagogue. So Paul is addressing believers in the book of Romans who still go to the synagogue. They're still kind of under the provisional leadership of synagogue leaders. Uh, the, the, the research I'm talking about makes a really excellent point that where Paul talks about how they bear the sword for your good, that it seems to be a better translation for that would be to bear the knife. And that same word can be the kind of knife that you would use in circumcision. Uh, or even if you think about bearing the sword, we have this idea already even of scripture being a, a, a two-edged sword. The point is, it's more likely about ecclesiastical authority within a Jewish context the synagogue leaders had actual teeth. They had real authority in people's lives. And Paul at this point is saying, let's keep the peace with our Jewish brothers and sisters. Let's continue to go to the synagogue. Let's, let's have an honoring relationship here. That makes a whole lot more sense than Paul saying, you know, Caesar and his guys are God's ministers who've been sent to help you. But it makes a lot more sense of Paul's reverent posture towards fellow Jews who he's still trying to honor while he disagrees with them about circumcision. Do you hear what I'm saying? So what it does not say in any case, I can tell you that, because this comes up in the book of Acts. When these two are in conflict, here's what it always comes down to. I'm thinking of Luke's quote in Acts here. Is it right for us to honor men or to honor God? Always the honoring God comes first. And, and, and do it, yes, yes, we actually do, and I really mean this. Uh, we love Caesar. We do pray for all of our elected leaders. And I know people probably think I have a bias on certain things because you're only hearing me now. What about when, was Obama, when, when Obama was calling for drone strikes and uh, immigration? I felt the same things then. <laughs> I still think the Christian witness is always more, we, we bear witness to what God says. And sometimes that comes into conflict. I still just think, I promise I'm landing the plane. We're in a moment right now where the people of God just need to be reminded of who the people of God are, that we need, to, we need that prophetic witness. I hope you don't hear me saying I'm a prophet. I don't think that. What I do think in the New Testament is that we're all called to be part of a prophetic community. All God's sons and daughters prophesy. We are all Amos. Do you hear what I'm saying? That, that's who we're called to be. That's the kind of voice that we're called to have. And especially in a time, I can't stress this loudly enough, when dehumanizing, degrading rhetoric is so common that speaks against human dignity, that is something that we as the people of God can never be party to. 
That's not right or left. I'm so tired of that. I'm so tired of that. I, got, I get that all the time. That sounds to me like you're singing out the right. No, the right is about, um, cares about a restricted role of government. The stuff you're saying is just racist. Do you hear what I'm saying? Like there, Some of this is not on our continuum of right, left, conservative, liberal. Like forget all of that. If it degrades a person who's made in the image of God, if it dehumanizes, that's not what Jesus sounds like. I don't know a different way to say this. I don't know how to dress it up. I don't know how to say it sexier or prettier or better or more palatable or whatever else. Like if it, if it dehumanizes and degrades, if it, and I'm, I, I promise I'm, I'm done on this, as a kingdom person, for me personally, and I know a lot of people don't like it when I say this either, I don't feel like I am entitled to value the lives of fellow Americans or our kids more than anybody else's kids because I'm a, because I'm a Christian because I'm a part of a kingdom that knows no borders that doesn't mean I can't love my country care about my country that doesn't mean I can't cheer for the USA in the Olympics that's fine but when it comes to matters of ultimate significance kingdom people are a different kind of people this is supposed to be what makes us weird. And when people say, but th- yeah, that, that, that stuff just doesn't work out. I just don't see how that, like, whatever. Like, it's not our job to be pragmatist and whatever. We, we, there, there's a prophetic side to our witness that says, however we have to work this out, we have to work it out in a way that gives a fair shake to the poor. Because we're the people of God. That's what the people of God are about. Stand with me if you would, or I'll do this forever. Thank you for listening today. More from Jonathan Martin. Go to jonathanmartinwords.com and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to support this podcast and help us keep going, go to patreon.com slash man. And we appreciate your support. Remember, no matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will help you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. God bless.